Hello, everybody. Chris here with another installment of the Make It Podcast. I hope you're having a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. This one is just for you, for you to walk around, catch up on things, eat your food, grill out, drink your beer, do yard work, whatever you do on Memorial Day uh, to celebrate life. We want to be in your ear while you do that. And uh, this episode is going to roll on the weekend for that reason. And this is volume three of our Indie Talk series with uh, me and Nick. So this week we talk about Corby Linker and his web series Morse Code. He had the episode four premiere this week, and I was really surprised and happily surprised and excited to see how well he was doing from a branding perspective. So we're going to talk about that. And then we're also going to talk about what should be near and dear to every filmmaker, which is how to avoid ne'er-do-wells and pariahs and people who would love to benefit from your hard work through the guise of distribution and purchasing your film, but in turn will pay you not one red cent and have no intent on releasing your film at all. So without further ado, I give you Indie Talk with Chris and Nick, Volume 3. Enjoy. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley, and with me today is my good friend and Make It podcast co-host, Nicholas Bugs. Hello, everybody. Chris here again with the third installment, the third volume, if you will, of Indie Talk with Chris and Nick. Nick, say hello. What's up, everybody? I know you're trying to do something. You might be like, yeah, the Indie Talk with Chris and Nick. (laughs) You weren't sure if you're going to play it straight. (laughs) Real crooked. No, I feel like like the voice I was using was like the vocal equivalent of dad bod. Dad bod. I'm mad at that. (laughs) You got me on a dad joke when I one of our first conversations. You're like, yeah, dude, that was a dad joke. I'm like, man, I can put me out like that. Dude, I have the best dad joke ever. You ready for it? Oh, geez. Go ahead, man. You ready for this dad dad joke is legit, and you're going to be telling it tomorrow. You're going to be thanking me also. All right, so check it out. What is Beethoven's favorite fruit? I don't know, Chris. Ba-da-da-da, ba-da-na-na, 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 ba-da-na-na. You're ridiculous, man. (laughs) Because, you know, at first I was like, what, butter ain't a fruit? (laughs) (laughs) You had to to save that one. (laughs) That must be jelly because jam don't shake like that. Shake like that. Um, I don't even know what that means. I have no idea why I said that. <laughs> You're all, it's late. That's what it is. It's late. Hey, your mind, you're punch drunk, homie. You're punch drunk. It's all yeah, good, though. Maybe. I'll tell you what. The next the next film event we're at, 
we'll have a little dare session and whoever loses will have to sort of whisper loudly as someone passes could be male or female that must be jelly because jam don't shake like that that's all you bro no you don't you're not into it (laughs) (laughs) why don't we just ruin everything we've built nick yeah yeah one sentence can't do it can we do that do it Uh, speaking of film events uh, last night, um, there were two events, and I don't know why these guys didn't talk to each other, but there were two events, and I had to go to one, and I promised Corby Linker I would go to his uh, birthday bash and episode four of uh, Morse Code, his web series Morse Code, episode four uh, premiere, but there was also Nashville Story Garden with our good friend Aaron Munoz and Drew Maynard, and I'm sure that went fantastic. They did a a short play and uh, man, I would have loved to go to that as well, but they, they literally booked two events for the community at the exact same time on the exact same day. Wow. Uh, how did this, ha- how does this happen in a community film community? So tight. I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll do better next time. I'm sure as, as a community so that we can all enjoy the same stuff. Uh, but I, I did go to Corby's and um, it was funny and it was raucous and uh, it was emotional. Um, you know, his sister passed away about 10 or 11 days ago. It was his birthday. Um, I actually thought when I heard the news that his sister passed, he was going to cancel. But uh, I'm so glad he didn't. He sang a beautiful song in her honor and it was super duper emotional. And then, you know, episode four was good. Um, uh, funny. We got, you know, laughs in the crowd. It has our good friend Dean Shortland uh, in this episode who comes in periodically as uh, Corby's dad or his memory of his dad, um, which is uh, always funny. And, and, you know, Dean's always good in, in, in everything that he does. And um, it was a really uh, cool event um, at, a, at a cool spot too, a spot that made me nostalgic because back when I used to um, intern with RJS artists and fat Sam music publishing and and was with my uh, business mentor, RJ Stilwell, uh, he would take me there to go watch uh, writers in the round. So basically just, you know, writers that sit in a semicircle and they each play a song and it just keeps going on and on and on until they're sort of out of acoustic songs to play. And there were a few different places around town that that did those sort of writers in the round event. And it was always great uh, because you knew you were meeting like the the city's best poets, essentially. And um, I hadn't really been back to the basement since then, since that time. So we're talking, uh, you know, a 15 year gap basically between visits and uh, definitely brought back a flood of nostalgia and and memories, but um, the thing that stood out, Nick, about uh, the entire um, event last night was how well Corby and his team had done uh, branding um, the show, and um, and 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 finding different ways for people to sort of consume everything that is Corby in this show. Uh, and he did a lot of things that me and you have preached. For, for many, many weeks on this very podcast and certainly on social. Uh, so 
As you go in, you're immediately confronted with his merch table. And a merch table isn't anything new. Uh, and me, you know, ad nauseum coming from music, <laughs> I've seen a lot of different merch tables. And this was a very well put together merch table because it it blended a lot of different concepts and a lot of different reasons to to enjoy Corby uh, all in sort of one spot. So you could buy vinyl of one of his best records. You could buy CDs. Uh, you could buy Morse code t-shirts that were commissioned and made by a local artist uh, who is fantastic. And uh, I'm forgetting her name now, but she was definitely in the audience um, last night and she made wonderful posters in which I bought one. He had his book medium hero there for purchase as well. So everything that he's done, he had there very, uh, very prominent on display and you could get that stuff. But then in the next room, he's singing uh, his songs. Um, uh, he's playing episodes of his web series, Morse Code. So he'd play an episode, then they would do a live performance. And they'd play an episode and they'd do a live performance, so on and so forth, until we got to episode four and then the event was over. But he's out there really doing it. So instead of saying, oh, I made this web series, I hope someone, and this is typically the formula in independent film, Oh, I made this web series. I hope someone finds it. I hope someone looks at it and thinks it's funny. Maybe if we have a really good episode, it'll go viral and everybody will love it. No, it's too crowded. It's too competitive. Um, there's never been more demand for content. And therefore, on the other side, uh, on the creator side, there's never been more competition for content. There's never yeah, so been, let, so let there's never been this many this creators, question. I should say. So, yeah, so I hear I hear you saying like all the awesome stuff that he had uh, when he got in, uh, which helps to reinforce his brand. Right. We're always talking about that that brand. And it's like part of that is the, the value that you're providing. Part of that is the quality of that value. And part of that's your personality. Right. And your principles and the things that you stand for. But the one thing I wanted, the reason I wanted to stop you, because you're you're definitely getting deep into all the awesome stuff that he provided. But I'm mm -hmm. kind of curious about how he got people to the door in the first place. Right. So ah. everything. Yeah. So if everything inside reinforced the brand. What did he do to share that brand with people to attract them to get there in the first place? I think he built it up. You know, the, the thing that's great about being a touring musician is that for, for 20 years is that you're going to have fans that stick with you and that are, you know, they're your people. They're your thousand true fans. And it's um, a concept that uh, Kevin Kelly came up with. Um, everyone should Google 1000 true fans, especially if you're an artist of any kind. And it's just a methodology and philosophy around creating content and being an artist and what it really takes to pay your bills doing art. And I think he's done that, Nick. I think he has a thousand true fans. And then all he has to do is push out events that he's doing to the Internet. I think the other part of it, too, and this is the part that's actually hard and kind of underrated, is that uh, it's two pronged. One, he actually does the work. Like he doesn't just sort of talk about it or question it. He, like he actually does the work of promoting his stuff. And then two, uh, his work is, is good. So when the stuff is good, it adds legitimacy, uh, legitimacy. Uh, and you know, the thing 
if you're a fan of someone or a follower of someone, the last thing you want is the person you follow or the person you're a fan of to embarrass you for being a fan. It's, it's, the, it's the number one sin in creativity is to embarrass your fan base with your work. Oh, yeah. I hear you on that. And I think that, you know, in everything that Corby does, you know, not only is there a high degree of creativity, but there's a high degree of quality. So, you know, in addition to his a thousand, you know, true fans, they're spreading the word for him as well because they believe in his stuff. And then other people are coming and they're buying the artwork, they're buying the vinyl, they're buying the CDs because he's giving them, you know, firsthand a taste of this stuff. And I think, you know, what you mentioned uh, as I was kind of cutting you off is that there's just so much content out there that you, you can't afford as an independent filmmaker just to put it out there and hope for the best. You know, you really have to go out there, grab these people and bring them to you. And I think that what was really cool about this event was that, you know, not only was it the premiere of, you know, was it episode four, uh, but it's also his birthday celebration. You know, there's a real person behind this art, you know, a person who has birthdays and likes to celebrate and likes to have a good time. And, you know, imagine that, you know, the next film that you saw in the theater, you got to actually go to that person's uh, house or to a venue and celebrate them and be a part of the way that they have fun and celebrate. Like there's, there's something humanizing about all that, that I think is, it's awesome that he did that, you know? So if, if more filmmakers uh, were to humanize themselves and, and, and not just speak through their art, but speak, you know, from their heart, uh, I think that would be, that's awesome. So yeah, I, I wish I had been in the area uh, because I probably would have gone to that too. And just been, um, you know, just as excited as you were uh, to see all the cool stuff that he's doing and he's, uh, you know, he's doing it. Like you said, he's doing the work, you know, he's, he's not expecting someone else to do the work for him. For sure. And, and that that's, that's, you know, our job, right? Like we go in and we start to look at the infrastructure of things. Uh, everyone else that's there, they're just there for Corby, just there to love him and say happy birthday and watch him perform some songs. And they're not judging him in any way. And, and they're there to just enjoy the work he's putting out. Uh, and, and that's true of, of us, too. But we're also looking a level deeper to say, OK, what's supporting this? What is he doing really great? What are areas that he can do better in? And, and, um, and, you know, you know, what are these areas for improvement? Right. Um, what is he, what is he doing that's working that we can impart on other filmmakers and creatives? And that's what I was looking at last night in part as well. So you blend it all together and it all works, right? So you have a following that's built in, you push it on social, not the day before, but the month before. Oh right? yeah, for sure. Yeah. Right? Like, so he was telling me about this when we had our, our conversation for this podcast and that was a month ago um, or, or more. And so well in advance, had a lot of lead time, pushed it out, had a great venue, um, understood what to do, um, has good content and think about this. So, so as it, as it all rolls out two days before the thing happens, he rolls out the Morse code t-shirts and the Morse code posters and limited run, both of them. So there's intrinsic value there because it's limited run and new way to support you to support him. But so new income streams and instead of doing the work himself 
or creating something generic or getting someone to print something generic, he commissions another independent artist to do that work and bring in a, a little bit more of that, you know, ethos and logos and pathos, right? Yeah. Um, the it's, killer combination. It, it, it really is. And, and that's why it works and that's why it continues to work. And, and that's why I think Morse code is, is the web series right now. And he, by the way, hates the term web series, but um, sorry, Corby, that's kind of where you watch <laughs> the show on the web, but uh, on Vimeo, but, but, you know, that's why I think he has the web series right now uh, locally in Nashville that has the most promise and, and probably has the most gas behind it as long as, and fuel behind it as long as, you know, he continues to be able to afford to churn out episodes and that he continues to brand it and find creative ways to get that content. Because remember, this whole thing, including his birthday, was a vehicle to get people and new people, new eyes to watch his web series. We yeah. Break it awesome. down simply as that, Nick. That's the cool part. Yeah. And I think that's the part that, again, we're always, uh, you could say preaching, but, you know, we're advocating uh, filmmakers to do is really just, you know, one, take a hold of your future, you know, by doing the work to get the word out and don't expect anyone else to do that for you, even, you know, a distributor. You know, they're not necessarily in the business of marketing your stuff. They're in the business of marketing things that are, are low risk, high return, um, whereas an independent film is high risk, low return, you know. Uh, so I think if you're taking, you know, that full control over your future, that's just that's the way to go. You know, you're not you, you really can't lose with that with that uh, approach because you have advocates, Mm-hmm. You know, you've got friends and family and fellow filmmakers who are going to advocate for you. And again, like you mentioned, if your if your quality is high, right? If you have good stuff, they'll tell other people. You know, and you'll get more followers that way, and more people paying attention to your work. So yeah, I think it's like I said, I think it's awesome. You know what Corby's doing? I think he's an example uh, to other filmmakers, other artists of of any kind, really. That yeah, this is this is your world. You know, make this stuff and and let people know it's there. Yes, yes. And I I might mention one other thing before we move on to a a different topic. Um, Because we are, as artists, we are all victims of this, or maybe we are all, maybe not victims is the wrong word, but uh, we have all allowed ourselves to be victimized by this and have been the perpetrator of this victimization on ourselves, which is that we make an excuse for not asking for the business, so to speak, or money from our fans because we don't want to sully our art. Um, We don't want to dirty up our art or I'm not a business guy or a gal. I'm an artist. And, you know, I don't want to even think about the business part. Well, sorry, you, you need to really think about it, because if you're not making money off your art, somebody else is for sure. Right. I know that the basement made money off that showcase last night at the door because it was seven dollars to get in. Right. Right. So yeah. and he's you know, the thing that Corby also does is he has zero embarrassment about asking for your support. And you would be shocked to find out how many independent artists either are ashamed to ask for the money 
uh, for the reason I mentioned are ashamed to ask for the money because they're afraid their art isn't good enough to, uh, to deserve pay. Yeah, that's, that's unfortunate, but like you said, it, it is real. And, you know, it's not just about, it's funny. It's not, it's not money for necessarily for profit's sake. It's actually for most independent filmmakers, it's, it's money for sustenance. You know, you want to be able to sustain your ability to, to make your art. So, you know, ask, you know, if you're putting out quality work, ask for that money. Yeah. You know, it's, it's and, amazing. And it's, like a, it's, like a, it. it's like a phobia because it's so universal. It doesn't matter where you're doing your art anywhere on the planet. You'll have artists that just aren't very good at monetizing themselves out of. And there are a lot of excuses why. And they all seem we're all really, really good as artists into rationalizing ourselves that those reasons are valid. Yeah. Rationalizing to ourselves. Um, uh, the, uh, Chantel um, Martin talks about this a lot too, that um, people in your own community start calling you a sellout. Once you start to ask for money and become successful monetarily, and you have to just recognize that for the bullshit that it is. Indeed, my friend. So speaking of being victimized, we are, you know, our main topic for, for this conversation is this very pervasive, very uh, insidious, uh, insidious, dirty um, business of independent film distribution uh, by certain distributors. And, there, and we found that there is a business inside of the business of independent film dis- distribution that is carved out, meaning the model is carved out. Um, it is uh, understood. It is intentional. And I think for me and you, Nick, we're going to do everything we can to destroy this business in a business. And um, I even thought about Nick, you know, what it would look like to go, to Bob Rains or to go even federally to create laws that um, force independent film buyers and distributors to open their books before a contract is valid. So, and I'll talk about that and we'll talk about that a little bit more, but a law that actually says and states that before a contract is valid in, in, in film, that the buyer must show their current holdings in a bank account, similar to buying a house where you, you know, you have to show what you have in your bank account, what you have coming in and that you are a valid person. Right. Because, and that'll just show you kind of the disrespect people have for art uh, in general, because you would never be able to buy a home and, and keep your finances shrouded because banks aren't going to get fucked. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I get you. And 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 this business side of business, let's talk about it. It it I'll break it down um, in a simple term, thirty thousand foot overview, and it works like this: the business that you think is happening as the filmmaker is that you've made a film, you're going to sell that film to a buyer or a distributor or both. They are going to pay you no money, typically up front. So no MG, what we call minimum guarantee uh, or MG. 
Uh, some organizations will pay you an MG um, if the film is good enough. But it'll be very small. Yeah, it'll be small, and it and it really depends on how good the movie is, right? And how how much money they think they can make off it. That part's fair, uh, but but a lot of times it's no money, and then there's a back end promise of paying you something uh, either through a split, like seventy five twenty five, eighty twenty. Uh, 50, 50, you know, you name it, um, or a lump sum payment, um, at the end of a term. So the lump sum payments, lump sum payments tend to happen when the buyer owns the rights to your movie for life. And then the split payments tend to happen when the movie is being licensed for a period of time. So usually 15 years, 20 years, et cetera. Right. But the business that's actually happening is the acquisition of IP, so intellectual property. And so when you sign a contract with a buyer and they pay you no money up front, you've done a value for no value exchange um, at that very moment. So you have to I'll say that again. So think about this, because think about how this applies to anything else in in the world. You give your film away which has value and, you know, so anywhere from $50,000 to $5 million that you made it as an independent filmmaker for $0 to the buyer, simply based on the faith that they can distribute it widely. And this thought process really drives, and Nick, I know you're with me on this. It drives us up the wall because it's 2019 and the power of a distributor has been greatly diminished in every area of media thinkable, especially if you're willing to do what we just said Corby did, which is put in the work and be creative, which is, you know, everyone who listens to this podcast, especially we would assume. So the reason they want to collect this IP is because if they collect intellectual property, let's say they have a slate of 10 to 20 films, they're able to turn around and leverage that IP against bank loans, high net worth individuals who would invest dollars into their company. They're able to sell that slate of movies to another buyer or distributor and have uh, and, and take a finder's fee or a slate fee for that. And that's really the game. That's really the business that's happening on the shoulders of your work and the only way it really can work is if they don't have to pay for your stuff up front in any way unless you have an MG and if you have an MG that really means right right off the bat that that company and organization believes they can make three times if not ten times the money that they gave you up front on the movie and that usually has to do with um, partnerships they already have in place contracts they already have in place or you're going to be added to a film slate, which is already part of a contracted deal that's in place. So um, this business can be very uh, dirty because it's super profitable and great for the buyer and almost always results in heartbreak and heartburn for the filmmaker, Nick. Yeah. So I think, you know, you and I were talking about this uh, briefly the other day and, and I told you that I don't know how many filmmakers we've spoken to who said, you know, making a film is like having a baby. 
And, you know, they go through this whole thing is this, you know, all this, all this work to finally, you know, you carry this baby for nine months during the production. And, you know, you finally, you know, give birth to this baby and you're so proud of it and you want to show the baby off, you know, that, that might be, you know, you're four walling, you're going to film festivals, whatever you're showing the baby off. And I hear that and I agree and I nod my head and I smile. And then I look at them and I'm like, okay, so what you're telling me now is that you're looking at this distributor that, you know, you don't know much about, you might have four or five, six of them. Uh, none of them are going to provide you with any money up front. Um, and they don't provide a marketing plan and you can't see their books to find out if they're financially viable. And yet you're going to hand them your baby. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like we vet babysitters better than that. You know, it's like, you're literally just going to hand over your baby on on what I think to us kind of looks like blind faith uh, because you don't want to manage the work after that. You want to just let it go. It's kind of like sending your kid off to boarding school, but the boarding school you chose because you got a flyer off of the back of a dumpster in an alley, <laughs> you know, that was, you know, that was handwritten in crayon. You know, that's kind of how I feel. It's like, you, you just let everything go uh, on uh, on blind faith. So, you know, I look at, okay, what why would you go with a distributor, right? One is because, you know, they can get out get it out to all of the appropriate channels. Well, you can do that via self-distribution as well, mm-hmm. right? There's things like Distriber uh, who will get you out to a bunch of different, um, uh, what is it, SVOD uh, options. You can look at something like Tug, you know, if you want to get it into the theaters, four wallet, uh, yep. you know, four wallet. So you can, Indie you flicks. can do that. Indie flicks. You know, you have options to distribute. Okay. Let's see. The, what's the next one? Vimeo uh, Pro. Yeah. But let's, the other thing is marketing, right? You go to a distributor because you want them to market your film. Well, you know, you got to look out there and find out how many of these smaller distributors. Again, I say smaller because you know, we're talking to independent filmmakers and they're not necessarily, you know, knocking down the big studios. Right. So the smaller distributors, how many of them are actually going to market and promote your film? You know, so it was the last time, you know, you, as an independent filmmaker, you spoke to one of these uh, distributors and they gave you kind of a, a sample or a template or a boilerplate or standard marketing plan that describes how they're going to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. So the first thing is you want them to distribute, but you can do that yourself. The second thing is you want them to market, but chances are they're not going to. And you're going to have to do that yourself. Uh, and then the last piece that I think the filmmaker is looking for is to not have to deal with all the transactional stuff that happens after distribution. Right. You got to collect those fees and and deal with that. And I think they don't want to be in the business of their film after a certain point. So they want someone else to do that. Well, by giving that up, you're probably going to give up more than 50%, maybe 70%, maybe 100% of what actually comes back to you. Uh, Because not only are you going to do a split, but maybe they did actually include some quote-unquote marketing expense that you don't really know how much it is. But for some reason, they're pulling against that every time you know, there's a click on your film or someone buys it, they're going to say, well, oh, yeah, well, we actually have to cover our operational expenses as well. Yeah. And so, so I should throw a caveat in there. Even the legitimate buyers that have your best interest at heart, push the film out to legitimate places, um, send you quarterly 
payments on the back end allow you to freely audit their books, even those places charge all expenses to market and distribute your film back against the production. Yeah, even to operate. Just like you said, if I have to send you a check in the mail, that's an operational cost that has to be uh, you know, adjusted for. So, so yeah, there's a lot of, again, we're not, we're not going to come here and say we're knocking uh, traditional distribution um, mechanisms, uh, but we will say that as an independent filmmaker, you need to be wary about who's taking your baby. Yes. <laughs> right. So you need to know uh, that they're actually going to care for your baby. And that's what you mentioned at the beginning, Chris, was this idea of being able to audit the books. Let me just see, you know, is the is the company an, actually a viable uh, entity? You know, do they actually have a track record of some sort? Uh, it's the same thing. It's like, and if I flip that coin on the filmmaker as well, it's like, you know, for some of the independent filmmakers that believe they've got something wonderful, uh, just know that distributors and, and other folks will be looking at your track record as well. So just as they're looking at yours, you should be looking at theirs. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot. Like you said, there's a business inside the business of of uh, reselling IP or leveraging IP for the interests of the distributor. I think a lot of these distributors are also uh, production companies. So if they can leverage the intellectual property to get a loan uh, to do their own production, then again, yeah, your film isn't the thing that they really want. They want the IP so that they can create their own. Uh, and that exists out there as well. So I think, you know, if we were to uh, provide any advice, it's really, you know, what are you looking for in this distributor? Uh, have you done your due diligence to vet them to see if they're a viable organization? And you have to know that, especially on the marketing side, unless you see something tangible, you know, which means in writing, uh, then you can't kind of go on blind faith that they're going to let people know about your project. And this is, again, back to what Corby's doing. You know, if you decide to go with a distributor, then you need to have your own marketing plan uh, so that you can bring people to your content. Right. Right. And, and just you, it, it almost helps you to sort of do it all in advance. Um, there are a lot of different tips and tricks that we could provide uh, to you um, and that you should know um, just even before the sale happens. So in post, go ahead and 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 do the QC if you can. You know, so grab your editor and say, let's make sure that we produce this in you know, five different formats, let's say minimum, so that when we provide it to the buyer, um, it's already ready for Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, et cetera. Um, that'll save the production a ton of money because it'll cost you more for the buyer to do that than it will cost you to do it as an independent filmmaker where you might be calling in favors or people might be working um, off their, you know, off their spec or minimum payment they typically take. Uh, so do yourself a favor and and do some of those things up front that would normally cost the production uh, money after the fact. Like so after you sold the movie, same thing with marketing and branding. If you wait until it's pay uh, until it's sold, then that buyer distributor, therefore, will then have to put together some sort of distribution and marketing plan. And now you're paying their hourly rate for that work instead of your hourly rate for that work. If you do it before you sell, 
Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll add to that, that, you know, for the marketing piece and the promotional piece, that if you give that away to a distributor, uh, that distributor may not market and promote uh, in a fashion that is on brand for you. Yes. Right. So if you've actually started all of your, you know, your brand identity uh, during the development of the film, during the production of the film, then a, a distributor would be ill-advised to break from the model that you've already created. So if you can start early with that, then that can continue on even through the sale of your film to a distributor because they'll want to take advantage of the audience that you've already built as opposed to trying to come up with their own way to build a new audience for your project. Literally lived through this personally. Uh, and I may have told the story before. 2000 and I think it was three-ish Maybe it was 2004 or five drive by trucker, the band, everybody knows and a band we were managing named trucker. Uh, both were looking for deals and drive by trucker got the deal we were looking for because they had a regional following and they had built up their regional following. And, uh, you know, it was, e it was an easy decision for the label to make because they had to spend less money and they knew they could turn around dollars quicker. And the same thing works in any form of art. Take your audience with you, leverage your audience, market to it, brand to it, know who those people are, know what you're trying to get across, and you, your film will do better uh, as, you, as you sell it and, and try to distribute it, uh, whether you go self-distribution route or whether you go the traditional route. I think the only, uh, the other thing, not the only, but the other thing I want to say related to this too, Nick, is that as you're making your film, um, be sure to have, you know, honest and clear goals about how you want the film to be distributed. I think if you're saying to yourself as you're making your film, the kind of film we're making with the kind of talent we have in it, this is going to go straight to VOD and SVOD. Well, if you know that, go ahead and start to formulate a team for self-distribution. Right? A lot yeah, of filmmakers feel blindsided by the fact that their film isn't going to do any theatrical. Um, and then they're like, well, dang, you know, I guess we're going to go to VOD, SVOD, and maybe we'll do a couple of theaters and showcases. Um, but our team isn't ready for self-distribution. Well, just know that about your film in advance. If you think your film actually has a shot at doing a regional theatrical run uh, based on the cast and the talent and, and how good the movie is, then you can start to project and plan for that traditional route of distribution that includes prints and advertising and all the money and the split with the box office and all that stuff. You know, if you're making a film that can, that can play in, in about 140 theaters to, to 500 theaters nationwide, then that's great. But you need to know that in advance uh, or as soon as you, as soon as you can, maybe even start working some of those deals in advance. But uh, far too often as creatives were blindsided by the underwhelming response to our film. And that makes us get nervous. It makes us question ourselves. Um, it makes us get impatient and impatience is sort of the, the guarantee that you're not going to get your value out of your art. Um, all those things happen based on being blindsided about what your work was really going to do and what the plan or lack thereof is. Yeah. And I think that some of that blind, sightedness comes with the naivete about 
uh, you know, putting work out there, that, that idea of uh, if you build it, they will come. Yeah, that might work for baseball fields, but that doesn't work for film, <laughs> you know? So, like, as an independent, uh, you know, I was I was just kind of thinking as you were talking about this, Chris, it's like if I – how many times have you been to the grocery store, you walk down, let's say, the cereal aisle, and, I mean, I don't know how many boxes of cereal are in the cereal aisle. Like, there's just so many different – not just brands, but different 17, types of cereal. 000. Exactly. I think you might be <laughs> off by maybe 3,000, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you walk down that aisle and there's just tons of stuff. And there might be this one box of cereal that's the best box, right? And it's probably down at the bottom somewhere. Uh, it's got a brand that you've never heard of. And the box itself is kind of nondescript, right? It's not going to pop out at you. So it's on the bottom. You don't know about it. It's not in the script, so it doesn't jump so out. So it's the best cereal, not the best box. Exactly. And that's the thing is that, you know, when you're dealing with film, there's a lot of really nice boxes out there with a, a lot of really nice brands, and those are the ones that are going to attract people's attention. They may not be the best cereal, but they've got it in the best box. So they spent the time to do the the marketing, you know, the, the way they made it look. They're really paying attention to, you know, how people, you know, when they walk down the aisle, what colors work, what colors stand out, what fonts stand out. They're doing all that work. And then the large brands, I mean, they get you just because of the brand. Right. You know that this you're familiar with the brand. So as an independent filmmaker, you're competing with the folks that have a brand. You know, you will compete with Disney. You may not think that you are, but, you know, you're competing with Disney because as soon as they put a film out, they're going to draw the audiences there. And as they draw audiences there, they're drawing them away from your project. The next film that may not be a Disney, if they've really worked on their branding, their brand identity, then people are being drawn to that because all of that work, they're drawing people in. So there's a lot of work that filmmakers should do to not just put the work out there, but spend the time, the effort, the money needed to, to make your box look shiny, look new, look appealing, um, because chances are it's going to be on the bottom. Yeah. Right. And, Those and, big and make brands sure you're, are getting on the top. <laughs> yeah. And make sure your box is integrated. Right. Uh, that's the reason why Wheaties puts Russell Wilson on the cover. Yeah. But, right. Now we've now we're not a cereal. We're a cereal that integrates your favorite football player. So if you like football, you like Wheaties. Um, your film can do the same thing. Like, fine. We just talked about it with Corby. Right. The reason yep. the reason why his uh, web series is so good episode to episode is because you're getting his original music. In the episode and he writes it to where you think he's writing these songs uh, on the spot, sort of like, you know, as the character. And that is the brilliance of, of how he's integrated his actual music with this new show, because essentially he's playing a version of himself. And so all this, so you're following this musician who's writing this great music, but can't seem to catch the break he needs. And you can do that with your film. And yeah, I mean, he does it. A, he just does a great job of promoting, and I think that's the angle is that you know if you really want people to be as passionate about your work as as they are, um, or as you are, excuse me, then you need to really promote it. You need to give people a reason to look at the bottom shelf of that cereal aisle and pick up your box of cereal. Like something's right. got to stand out to them, and you're right. responsible for making that happen. But but something we've done 
in our careers for years, you know, combined over 20 years between me and you is the integration piece, which is, I guess, commonly today called the growth hack, which is you take something and you integrate it with something else that has nothing to do with it. Yeah. You you tell me what playing quarterback in the NFL has to do with a flaky wheat cereal. Well, now it doesn't seem like a weird integration because Wheaties has been doing it for, I don't know, 30 years or longer. But at the time, it probably sounded pretty wacky, right? So you got to figure out how to integrate something that you don't, that other people aren't going to necessarily see as related and then relate it into your film to make them one idea, one cohesive idea. Um, And you will strike gold with that because you'll at the very least double your audience because you'll be bringing two audiences together that didn't know they cared about one another. Um, and that, uh, and that is one of the pieces of secret sauce. I think we've given out a lot of secret sauce in this episode. So, um, I'll wrap us up with this, um, heard a conversation with Martine Rothblatt. Are you familiar with her? I am not. Uh, she invented a serious XM radio. Okay. And she also, um, invented United Therapeutics. And that came about because she found out her daughter had a one in a million illness that she was going to die from in about two or three years at age five. And instead of just being told no or resigning to the fact that her daughter was going to die, she literally invented and found therapy that had saved her daughter's life. Daughter is still alive to this day. It's been over 20 years. And literally save the lives of everyone with this disease across the country. So at the time that the, uh, the therapy was invented and, and scaled, uh, there were 2000 people living with it in the United States that all had death sentences. And today there are over 40,000 people in the U S that live with this and, um, and, and are not going to have to die. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, she's done a lot of other things too. Uh, she invented the electric helicopter. Um, she invented a way to make uh, lungs. Uh, you know, people who die, they donate organs like lungs. Um, 80% of those lungs are not suitable for transplant. They, they turn bad. And um, she found a therapy and a way to take those lungs that are being thrown out and make them good as new. Um, and that's simplifying it a little bit, but this person is worth looking up. Uh, she's pretty amazing. Uh, also transgender individual. Uh, so born a man and then changed to who she is today. Um, definitely worth looking up. But the reason I bring her up is because one of the things that drove her entrepreneurialism is that she realized what age she was in and like we are, and, and she talks a lot about how, what a blessing it is to be alive in 2019. So you translate that, th- that to anything that you're doing in film creatively, what a blessing it is to live in 2019. There is no one on the planet that can tell, you no, that's not possible. There's no one that can say that's not possible. This is what Martine was told routinely. That's not possible. That's not possible. No, no, I did the math. It is possible. And so if you're making a film out there, anything you can dream up, there is no longer a technological obstacle around that. We can honestly say that now. 
that you know, you know, we're we're mapping genomes. We are making nanobots. We are merging a neural net with with human beings. This is the new age. So if there's a way you can distribute your film in a way you can get eyeballs on it, anything is on the table. All you need to do is have the smarts and have the right team to deliver something like that. Deliver your idea because nothing is impossible today. So I just wanted to close with that. Encourage everyone out there to keep making things and don't be impatient. Don't settle for some charlatan that wants to collect your IP at no cost so that they may fund their life on the backs of bank loans and other high net worth individuals that think they are running a real business when in fact they never intend on releasing your film or helping you in any way or paying you one red cent. And it is a business in a business. So be aware. Nick, thank you again for joining me for another version of Indie Talk. This is always so much fun. Do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners before we wrap? Yeah, man, I'll say uh, two things. And the first one is uh, to piggyback off of what Chris just said and to, you know, hearken back (laughs) to an earlier comment I made. You know, in the film business, if you're walking in blind faith, you're going to mess around and walk into traffic. So, you know, you can't be blind about these deals that you're getting into and and the people that you're dealing with. Uh, and the last thing that I'll say is just something that permeates everything that we do. Uh, be better, be creative, and be engaged. I love it, brother. Thank you so much, man. All right, man. My pleasure, dude. All right. Talk soon. Yes, sir. As always. All right. Have a good night. All right, you too, man. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects and social media feeds, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash make it. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. If you do that, the show will pop right up. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Show Me How to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative be engaged. And thank you for listening.